Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Christ the Coffee podcast. Today, we have my good friend, Axel Kegler. He is the pastor of St. John's Lutheran Church in Spinnerstown, Pennsylvania. And today, we're going to be talking about Reformation Sunday and the legacy of Martin Luther. Uh, Axel is a Lutheran minister, and he is on the pod today. So welcome, brother. How are you doing? Doing well. Glad to be here. Glad to share coffee with friends. And uh, yeah. What do you got there? What are you drinking today? So um, being that I'm in Eastern Pennsylvania, I thought the appropriate thing would be to uh, have some Wawa. Uh, Wawa being, uh, we were talking about this a little bit earlier. Uh, we described it for other fo- for folks outside of the um, Pennsylvania, New Jersey area as transfigured uh, 7-Eleven. That is 7-Eleven as God would have intended it to be. Yeah, there you go. I've only ever been to 7-Eleven and I haven't had the uh, the blessing of walking through the doors of a Wawa yet. I'll have to make my way, my Mecca to Wawa at some point in time. Yeah, I, by route, route 663, the John Freeze Highway. I'll, I'll treat you to one. <laughs> yeah, they're making their way up north to Jersey now. It's, it's really good that they're expanding. I hope they uh, make it all the way to the city. I think there was a sign the other day saying that they're going to infiltrate because we have a lot of random 7-Elevens, and it's just like, Why? 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 Why are these things still happening? Uh, I had Pizza Hut the other day because uh, I heard they were going out of business, and then it was like the worst decision I've had. But also Dude, nostalgic. Pizza Hut. Yeah, oh. I know. I forgot what it tastes like, and it was. I feel like I don't know if it was a LA thing because I I grew up in LA. Um, well, like my junior high from junior high on, I was in LA. When I was in LA, like the cafeteria would have like little mini individual pizza hut pizzas. Did they do that everywhere? Was that like a national thing or was that just LA? That's pretty LA. Like we had like this like Elios pizzas, like these like cardboard (laughs) pizzas that were really nasty. Oh yeah. Yeah, no, I just remember pizza hut pizzas. You could get them in these little circle, like just terrible. They're not pizza. I don't know what it was, but it wasn't pizza. You have to be in a really special mood to have really garbage pizza. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Especially if you live in like where Axel and I are from, like the New Jersey, New York area, where you have these Italian immigrants, some of the best pizza. And then you realize like you travel the rest of the world and it's like, there's no good pizza or no no good bagels elsewhere. Yeah, Uh, I mean, there's like a 50 mile radius outside of New York City in which you can trust every pizza you're going to have that isn't mass produced, isn't mass, isn't like a big brand. It's like 50 mile radius. Once you get out of that, you're in no man's land. Yeah. So, so the question is, why are there pizza huts in that radius? Or why are there uh, 7-Elevens where there's these glorified uh, or transfigured 7-Elevens? Why, why, how is 7-Eleven still in business if there's a Wawa next door is, is, the, is the conundrum I have. Maybe this is one of those deep divine questions you'll have to ask the Lord in, uh, <laughs> in the new creation. Yes. Well, speaking of uh, reforming... Uh, institutions <laughs> whoa let's, what a pivot let's let, let's talk about uh celebrating the legacy of the reformation um uh, it's what, how many years now 503 years 503 actually yeah um we had our big 500th anniversary of the reformation back in uh 2017 but 2020 actually has its own like claim to fame in that regard because three of luther's most important works like central works to understanding who Luther, what Luther's theology is and what it means for us today were actually written in 1520. Um, oh, nice. Uh, right after um, Pope Leo X finished his um, excom- letter of excommunication, which only arrived like way later. 
Um, Luther wrote three really central works. Uh, the first one was a letter to, was an open letter to the German princes and the emperor um, called to the, to the Christian nobility of the German lands. Mm. Uh, the second one he wrote was called on the Babylonian captivity of the church. Um, yeah, that's yeah. more or less where he lays out his understanding of Holy communion um, and his address to the abuses of Holy communion within the Roman Catholic church. And finally, the one that you guys probably know best. And I th certainly think probably if not his best, then one of his top works, uh, The Freedom of a Christian. Uh, that was also written in 1520. So, um, and they're really like published in, um, in quick order. So I think um, if memory serves on the, to the, the letter to the German nobility was written in like August, Babylonian captivity in October and Freedom of a Christian in November. So. So what, um, for maybe viewers who aren't familiar with the, historical, theological development of the, the Reformation. Um, just to the layman, what, what was the Reformation all about? So that's a really interesting question um, because I think different, we often talk about the Reformation, hmm. but one of the points that a lot of, uh, a lot of Reformation scholars have been trying to make over the last several years, uh, certainly over the last 20 years or so, is that there isn't really one Reformation. Hmm there are a lot of reformations that are going down at about the same time that are up to just slightly different things. And they're interacting with one another and doing really interesting stuff against one another and around one another, and sometimes in opposition to one another. Um, so there's, you know, there's the Lutheran reformation, of course. Um, there's the, Re there's the reformed movement. There are the Mennonites, the Anabaptists and the like. Uh, there's the English reformation, which is also very different. Uh, and they all have, they all take, appreciably different stances on a lot of theological takes and a lot of sociological takes as well. Like what's going on in France and in Switzerland isn't the same thing that's going on in Wittenberg and certainly isn't the same thing that's going on in like Canterbury. Hmm. Um, but the Lutheran Reformation, um, if I were to kind of sum up its principle, like the, the sole principle of it, if, there, if, if I could distill it to a single thing, it's that it's God words. It's God's word that creates. It's not our deeds that create. It's not us that create, but it's God's word. We can trust in God's word alone to get the job done. Hmm. Um, you know, um, we have a we have a the, we call it a theology of the word. Um, hmm. That when God speaks, something happens, and that's not just. Um, it's so like creation didn't start. Didn't like. We don't talk about like a, a six-day creation necessarily, but God continues to create. God continues to sustain. God continues mm -hmm. to redeem you and me um, by God's work alone, not really by ours. We're part of it, certainly. You know, um, we, we do lots of awesome stuff. We do mm -hmm. a lot of terrible stuff too. Um, but, uh, you know, God, God works wonderful things through us. Um, so like every time we try to create like middle steps intermediate stuff whenever we try to put our hope on ourselves or on someone else instead of jesus we're kind of barking up the wrong tree we're we're getting the creator confused with the creation hmm. that's what well, well put uh let's talk a bit about the context i have a very fond memory when i was in sixth grade we had a substitute teacher who was a retired sixth grade uh the teacher and uh, his name was mr mayor and he was only there for two weeks coming out of retirement to teach and he taught on the Protestant Reformation and he taught about it with such like 
like passion and conviction. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming he was a Christian, but I don't know. But like, it just, it's just weird looking back. Like you forget so many things that have happened uh, in class, but for whatever reason, those two weeks was like such a refreshing uh, time for me. Uh, and I still remember him teaching about the Protestant Reformation and its fullness. Um, could you provide like the backdrop? Like, like usually people think, all right, Martin Luther nailed the, the 95 thesis. W what are those thesis? What's going on? Just, just again, yeah. kind of create the scene of what's really happening in, in the German Reformation part. Oh man. Uh, this is cool. Uh, it goes to banking and economics and, <laughs> and the melding of religion with banking and economics and statecraft mm. Mm. and sometimes peacecraft, but also warcraft. Um, you know, uh, not the game yet. That's later. But what's going on is that um, Martin, there's this, um, there's this development in Western Roman Catholic theology um, called the doctrine of the indulgence. Um, in which you can, um, in which through certain deeds and certain actions and certain ways, as well as through prayer, the prayers of priests, bishops, cardinals, the Pope, etc., um, where you can t get time off of purgatory. Um, purgatory is, was understood to be a really rough thing, not an easy thing. You know, it's not hell because it's not hopeless. You're, you're attaining perfection in purgatory. It's, it's a good thing to be in purgatory in that model. Um, but eventually a concept develops that you're able to actually donate money of a free and merry heart um, to get time off of purgatory. And there's this man named Johannes Tetzel who is trying to raise money for the archbishop of, uh, of Luther's wider territory. Um, the archbishop has taken out a lot of loans from local bankers, huge loans from local bankers to kind of bolster and levy his petitions to be elevated to archbishop. It was a political campaign, really, to a political campaign to become archbishop. And with that, he raised up a lot of debts. So the great way to get rid of debts was, of course, through money. And a great way to raise money was through the practice of plenary indulgences. So you've got this one guy, Johannes Tetzel, who's running around Germany saying, um, you know, um, for every coin in my book, that, uh, that rings a soul from purgatory springs or sings. So pretty much give us some money and we'll pray some, for some time off so that your ancestors, your, your parents, your grandparents will get time off of purgatory. Perhaps even you will get time off of purgatory. We'll, we'll pray for you if you put this money in, the, in this bucket. Right around this time, Luther is becoming more and more acquainted with, well, the gospel, widely speaking. And uh, more particularly, he's understanding the Book of Romans, and he's understanding the Old Testament, and he's seeing this is a real problem. You know, it doesn't sound, it doesn't smell right to him. So he creates, you know, he's doing this pastoral work in Wittenberg, in this you know university town, where things are really getting wonky, and people are saying, "Oh, I don't have to worry about my ancestors anymore. I don't have to worry about my mom and my dad anymore, or my dying child anymore, because I've given all, I've given a whole lot of money to the church." which means they'll be fine. That goes against Luther's understanding of his vows, and that goes against Luther's understanding of, his, of the scriptures, um, because he's read that Jesus Christ forgives us, that Jesus Christ rose for us, um, that forgiveness matters, and that forgiveness is efficacious. And um, it seems really weird to put money into the equation, Luther thinks. Um, 
he doesn't think that's a great sacrifice. He doesn't think that's a, that's a biblical thing to do. Um, so Luther writes up an academic disputation. Um, it's a pretty common order of rhetoric for the time for the university system. Uh, 95 theses, which he wants his students more or less to debate. And he, he only writes out 95 theses, some of which are really kind of, uh, really kind of clever and really kind of witty. Um, my favorite one is, um, you know, if the Pope thinks that he can forgive people, if, if the Pope thinks that he can take time off of purgatory, why is he doing it for money? Why isn't he just praying for everyone? Like, why is money entering into this equation? Like, we're not supposed to be interested in that. That's not really, like, could, couldn't he just pray for everyone and just get rid of all the purgatory? That, sound, that sounds great. I want on that boat. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating how common, like, when people complain about a church, uh, it's usually related to, like, political hypocrisy or financial shadiness, yeah. whether it's televangelists or uh, a local clergyman trying to suck up to a family to uh, yeah. to get, get something done. It's, it's always, follow the money is always a th yeah. thing. Right. And all that money is going away from Germany, away from healthcare in the German states, away mm -hmm. from public works in the German states, away from all these things. In the long term, it's going to a bunch of, it, it's ultimately, a lot of the indulgences are ultimately going in the long term to Rome to fund Roman public works. And Luther is getting kind of proto-nationalistic in this sense. He's like, why is all of our money going there when we need it here? Hmm. I've got people who are dying here. We need doctors here. Like, Right. What good is this money doing? It's right. making really, it's making great art, like sure, but what good is this? So, um, Luther writes up these ninety-five theses to dispute. We don't know if the disputation ever actually happened, because you know he nails it up to the universe, to the uh, to the walls of the church, to the uh, door of the church, as as anyone would for that style of rhetoric, that style of academic debate, um, to publish that this is going to be talked about. And then people go, whoa, this is really cool. Then it gets taken and it gets copied and published and distributed across Europe. It goes, um, you know, this is right around the time that the printing press has become really established and really widespread. So this isn't like, you know, the printing press isn't like the internet in 1990. It's like the internet in 2020. It's like, um, it's now part of the common life. And right. Luther is using it very effectively. Um, because he's getting, because this stuff, like without his even knowing it, it's getting sent across Europe. And it's one of the everyone, first viral threads, huh? Yeah. Yeah. It, hashtag it really 95 theses. Yeah. Hashtag why is this happening? Why yeah. are we, uh, like, you know, so this is going across Europe. Um, and people are reading it and they're getting really interested in it. And it, makes um you know luther thought it would just be a little it was a little isolated incident more or less what's happening like this is just some shenanigans that's happening on in the german states because the pope doesn't have enough oversight here and uh because you know the archbishop doesn't really know what's going on in wittenberg which is a fairly obscure town at this point it's a it's a kind of crappy university um it's it's not it's not notable it's um yeah. you know th this isn't this isn't the harvard or the princeton it's you know it's some dinky institution yeah. And, um, you know, it gets published, it gets spread around, and um, that doesn't make a lot of people happy. Um, that makes a lot of people very unhappy. And Luther more and more is called to account for what he said. 
and Luther writes responses to what he's being accused of and just kind of starts expanding his thoughts. And those, um, and those writings get wider and wider distribution um, to the point where, um, where his voice becomes loudest in a lot of places. Hmm. And um, he one, becomes one of the most widely read people in, uh, out of Germany. Hmm. Uh, in time, he gathers together a whole bunch of friends. He has a bunch of other disputes, and people start to agree with him. Um, some of the some of the smartest minds in in Germany are agreeing with him, and people are coming from all over. Actually, at this point, um, Wittenberg, which was kind of a dicky institution, is now all of a sudden attracting the smartest people in the wider area. In uh, widely speaking, Northern Europe, people are also coming from the Balkans. People are coming from uh, from Spain. People are coming. You know, people are coming to study at Wittenberg. Um, and the university all of a sudden becomes like one of the top universities in Europe as well. Um, so, you know, I'm it's the way, the way that narrative is pieced together. One of the things I appreciate about um, understanding the economic and social impact of the reformation or, or causes leading to the reformation as well as the theological is that, you, you know, really, frames the whole movement the whole reformation as kind of i mean I, I say this with a little bit of tentativeness but it's like a theologically grounded social justice movement <laughs> like it's yeah. i mean they're really upset with what's going on um national well there's not really a nation of germany yet right it's a bunch yeah. of little states Smaller per- but- there's a common german identity but there isn't really but they're not really a there's the holy roman empire as well Right, but like there are a lot of taxes between all these individual places and importations between these various places, so it's not yeah. a it's not a common yeah. government really. And these local um, communities are are really experiencing like injustice. I mean, they're angry, they're upset with how they're being treated. And mm-hmm. when you know when Luther discovers not just the injustice, but his commitment theologically to a god of justice and righteousness which is righteousness is going to be a huge thorough thread throughout his language um it just it really drives him up the walls i think it's it's interesting to explore that angle in it and and uh and ground the reformation not just in a theological ideological debate but really on a grounded um human justice human rights uh debate and um, to that end, the, theolo- the guy who's doing the best work around this, he's a theologian and historian uh, named Carter Lindbergh, hmm. um, who's been editing a lot of works recently. I think the project's over, but, uh, but it's called The Forgotten Luther. Um, and you can find a bunch of really interesting, um, you, know, you can even find it for free um, off of one of uh, Concordia Seminary's um, pages. Uh, he gave this great lecture called Big Thieves Hang the Little Thieves, uh, Luther on the market economy, uh, wow. where Luther is really, he's hammering on economic injustice in his areas. And he's trying to, you know, when he's setting out to a reformation, he's not just setting out um, an abstract principle. He's saying, well, you know, the, the first of the 95 theses is when Jesus Christ says, follow me, he calls us into a life of repentance. Hmm. Um where we're actually following Jesus and following Jesus has economic consequences Mm. and it has an effect on how you view your, your people and your Mm. state and your city in particular. So Luther, the, 
the states and the cities that end up following the Lutheran movement um, often were writing to Luther um, for advice on how to do this. This is especially after his, uh, his time in exile had come to an end and he was, you know, in Wittenberg. Um, mm -hmm. He had been exiled for a while. We can talk about that later. Um, but like <laughs> Luther is, Luther is um, asked to write all these different like city codes and he doesn't really know how to do it. Luther is not a, that's not Luther's gift. Luther is a, a kind of a hothead and a shoot off the hip kind of guy. Like he really, you know, he's brilliant um, and he's, you know, sassy and mean and faithful. Um, but uh, he's not, most people say he's not much of a systematic thinker. He doesn't have much of a mind for systems. He just sees something is wrong and wants it to be right. 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 So he actually ends up exporting that work, that city work, that justice work to a couple of his uh, friends. Um, I think the most important of them um, was a man named Johannes Bugenhagen, uh, which is first off the best name of the Reformation. <laughs> Amazing name. Uh, second off is a character in Final Fantasy VII. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Didn't know that one. And uh, third off, he is, um, he's Luther's pastor and Luther's confessor. You know, we often think of the heroes of the Reformation as like these you know, staunch, brilliant minds that are kind of on their own. But Luther was part of a community. He was embedded in his space. And he was plagued with fears and doubts and threats. Like people were always threatening his life. Yeah. You know, he was technically an outlaw from the Holy Roman Empire. And uh, without the protection of his prince, he was open. He was an open target. So like he was always going for help and wisdom from Bugenhagen. Right. And sometimes Bugenhagen, who's sometimes called uh, Dr. Pomeranius because he's from Pomerania, um, Bugenhagen is sometimes actually sent out on loan, more or less, uh, from the academy and from the church, from the congregations, to um, like two German cities, to, uh, I believe, mm. Hamburg and Rostock. Uh, he, goes, he makes his way up to Denmark and uh, Sweden and places like this. And he's tasked with writing them city and church codes to create a more just society on site. Like he'll go up there and say, okay, so what are you guys doing? How are you, how are your churches working? How are you feeding the poor? What's your education system like? And he'll write tax codes and uh, he'll write like call processes for when, for when a pastor has to leave or when a pastor has to die or, or like, you know, um, when a pastor needs, so like he'll, he'll be writing out codes on this, how a city can properly work, how it can live faithfully according to the Lutheran confessions, which aren't ex existing quite yet. Lutheran confessions are formulated a little later. But he's like, okay, well, if you're going to be a Lutheran, what does that mean on a, on a city level? It means education. It means poorhouses. It means a common chest that the pastor and the mayor and a few other figures, maybe, depending on who's on the council and who's in control, you know, he's dealing with, you know, free cities and imperial cities and, um, you know, kingdoms and stuff like that. And each place has a different government. He says, okay, well, if you're going to be, have this government, who should have control over disaster relief? Or if um, someone's really struggling, who's in control of making sure that they can eat? Who's making sure of giving small businesses loans? Who's in charge of um, helping people um, recover from illnesses? And so he'll work with, so Bugenhagen's working with these guys saying, okay, the pastor and the mayor and this guy and that guy, 
you're all going to work together and you're going to be held accountable by these guys over here. And you're going to make sure that everyone in the city eats because that's important. Um, Luther actually says that no city or that, that all of the flags that all the principalities and all the cities have are stupid. And what they should really actually have is a loaf of bread because it's the prince's job to make sure that everyone has, has enough bread. That's awesome. I, I, uh, you know, we can't do this podcast without telling our favorite Luther anecdote because Luther, as you could, if you're not familiar with Luther, if you're coming in on this and saying, who's Luther, uh, just pick up any one of his books and you'll notice that this is like Axel said, he's a hothead. I mean, all of the rhetoric is amped up. Uh, some of it is probably common for the kind of debates they'd have of the day, but also, you know, some of it, like Axel said, the guy has a target on his back. So, you know, you put yourself in his shoes. You can't read it as a, you know, you know, sitting comfortably in your living room, you know, reading his he, you know, he, he, captivity he's not of the church. You can't just read that and be like, wow, this sounds a little bit harsh. Like, yeah, well, you put yourself in his shoes. He's being hunted down. And he's said a lot of crazy things. He's um, he's often, like you said, he's kind of a shoot from the hip guy, which usually translates to some sort of controversy around an isolated statement he made that's taken out of context. So, yeah, um, yeah I'm I'm curious, Axel Haig. I mean, I have one in mind. What are your favorite Luther stories? I like that he has a a a whole like teaching on the Lord's Prayer for his barber <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's like for his barber uh, and one of my favorite luther quotes is uh pray let god worry hmm. so going yeah. back to having this target on his back like he wasn't some troll behind the computer screen with an alias here everyone knew who he was and he was like uh what would you would you call like the first celebrity in many ways uh because he was a uh, uh, well known across the, the, the because of the printing press so he had a lot to worry about, like, yet he had the fearlessness to, to just do what he felt needed to be said, which is getting people back to the word, knowing that it's through Christ alone, through faith alone, where we have our salvation and everything else is excess. So like his fearlessness is really something I, I love, but that line, pray and let God worry. Uh, and the fact that he wrote something about prayer to his barber uh, the, the prayer life of Luther is really what I admire the most. Well, also when you set it in context of his life, that's a profound like reality for him. Like pray and let God worry. Like he's got more work to do. He's going to like transfer it to God and keep moving. I think that's, yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. No, he would spend hours in prayer. So like three hours a morning in prayer sometimes when he had, you know, um, he would say how much stuff he had to do over the course of the day. And the more stuff he had to do over the day, the more time he needed to pray. Wow. Um, you know, he was never wasting his time in prayer. He was always, um, you know, finding his, finding his identity in prayer, um, finding it in Jesus. And um, God, my favorite Luther anecdote, um, the Luther I like the most, um, you know, isn't necessarily the sassy Luther, though there's an, there's an abundance of that. Um, a colleague of mine, uh, Pastor Tyler Rasmussen, who's a pastor in um, Wauwatosa, Wisconsin, um, has a, a Luther insult generator where you can just <laughs> click a button and it'll get you a different insult every day. Um, oh, that's awesome. We got to put the link to that in the, yeah. in the comments down here. Um, but my favorite Luther is actually like the day-to-day -day Luther, just like you were saying, uh, hi, with um, 
you know, Luther would write prayers to his barber, or he would help, he would teach his barber how to pray. Um, you know, um, one of the first, Luther's family was the first clergy family in over a thousand, in, in roughly a thousand years. Um, Katie Luther was the first pastor's wife in roughly a thousand years, like, wow. or 500 years. It depends on how you, depends she, on how you track she, it. And, and just like, just for those who don't know, she was a former nun and Luther was a, 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 a monk. Yeah. Yeah. So like, this is some kind of groundbreaking stuff. So Luther is, so Luther has, um, Luther has to write, um, Luther's realizing that everyone around him, you know, he's reforming the church. There are a lot of really bad teachings going around. And more than that, there are also a lot of really bad pastors and priests that are around. And there are a lot of struggling families around that don't know even the basics of Christianity. So Luther sets himself to write something called the small catechism, a small handbook um, that's designed not for, not for, you know, fancy thinkers or anything like that. It's just for, it's just for use at home. Uh, he later writes a large catechism as an expansion of it for, for pastors and for guys like me who just, you know, um, think too much about things. Um, but he writes this book called the small catechism, which is also distributed across Germany and it's for households so that moms and dads can teach their kids the basics of the faith. And it's written, um, the, the standard question, like he'll, he'll write out, you know, um, the 10 commandments, the apostles creed, and, um, he'll write out the Lord's prayer and each petition. And he has this little question for each part of it. Um, was ist das? Um, Luther intentionally wrote that. What's this? It means, what is this? What's this? He wrote that in a form that indicates that it's a child asking the question. So Luther is writing this thinking of his own son running around asking daddy, daddy, what's this? Daddy, daddy, what's that? What does this mean? What does that mean? He's like, you know, writing with this image of like his son pulling at his jacket and pulling at his robes, asking him what this is. So you can imagine this exasperated Luther just trying to explain something to his kid yeah. um, and trying to make some things clear because he knows that they need to know these things. Hmm. Um, so more sorry. than that, I was going to say, and uh, like a little bit more than that, like he's seeing that as everybody's life and he's seeing, you know, the role of children in the world as a holy thing um he's seeing the role he's seeing that children aren't like adults who are waiting to happen he's saying them as he's seeing them as gifts from god unto themselves mm. um and uh like he'll talk about how children have a vocation to be children they're called mm. to be children right now and it's a holy thing to be a to be a kid um what was one last thing i was gonna say oh and luther views fatherhood and uh, parenthood in general as a holy office. So um, when Luther is writing about, um, you know, um, people making, you know, priests and popes and whatever, like looking down on on dads and like hiring out nurses and maids and stuff like that, and looking down on the little people who are looking after their children, um, you know, we're we're too high and mighty for this. Luther says, you know, all of the angels look at all of the all of the papal, papal figures, all of the Vatican, all of, the, all of this, all of that, and the other, and they think it's stupid. And they look to a dad who's changing his daughter's diapers. And they rejoice in heaven because it's a true and holy work, because he does it purely out of love, not out of self-interest. Hmm. I love that. And, and I think that's one of the things, I've, I've mentioned this before in our podcast, I can't remember at what point, but that one of the things I so appreciate about the Reformation coming out of that heritage 
is when we talk about the priesthood of all believers, we mean more than just the fact that everybody can pray. It means that every vocation is a gift from God. Every calling, every, every work we do, the, the baker, the barber, the candlestick maker, you know, they all have a calling from God. Um, and they're to use their gifts for the good of creation, for the good of God's, God's world, God's cosmos, and to use it for, um, the, for, for something that's honoring to God and, and loving towards neighbor. I think that's a beautiful product or byproduct of the, the Reformation if it's at the core. Yeah. Um, okay. My favorite Luther moment, I just remember this from seminary and it's always stuck out. And it's probably a deep cut, but I think it was in one of his Eucharistic debates. It might have been with Calvin. I'm not sure. Did he? He, he debated with everyone. Yeah, he, he had fights with everybody. I don't know who yeah. he was debating. Um, but he was at a Eucharistic debate, and they were describing the nature of, of the elements. And he was you know, pushing for what we call now, I guess, real presence. I don't know that he would have called it that <laughs> at the time. But he was... He was uh, infuriated with the debate and he was, during the debate, he was uh, apparently like carving into the wood of the desk that he was writing at. And he got up and he yelled, he said, he had, he had written or carved into his desk, hoc est meum corpus, this is my body. <laughs> so he yeah. was like furiously pointing at it like, this is what it yeah. says. Yeah. And it's like yeah. such a perfect embodiment of the character of Luther. Like he's passionate about it. He's a little odd about it, but he's going to get it out and everybody will, will be marked by it. Like you can't walk away not knowing what his position is. I love that story about him. Yeah. And also in his writings to, uh, oh, what was it? Was it the bondage of the will when he wrote to Erasmus and he was, he was kind of responding to Erasmus. Mm -hmm. Um, I love I love just opening up the the introduction to that and reading his correspondence or his response to Erasmus and it's just like stab after stab after stab. I think there's one point where he's like he's like people are wondering why it's taken me so long to like respond to Erasmus and they're wondering, you know, oh is Luther finally vexed? Does he not have any words? And he said, "No, basically like I, he, he just teases Erasmus like basically his work was such trash I didn't even know what first word to write like it's such it's such a mess and it's so illogical I don't even know yeah. what to say it's just like junk um so so we have the prayer life uh Luther the family man Luther and the trash talker rap dude, battle Luther yeah. You, yeah you you watch I mean they could make uh maybe they should do a uh they should do a new version of Hamilton and just turn it into Luther. That would be awesome. And he really, you know, like we, we were talking a little bit earlier about how he's, um, how, yeah, we, we should understand how mean he is, but he actually also is kind of mean, like even for yeah. his day, <laughs> they thought, they thought he was a little excessive. Like, um, when Luther's, when Luther has died, um, when, um, you know, and the, one of the last things Luther did um, when he finally got, when he finally had his last illness, um, Luther had actually been going up to dispute, to um, or settle a dispute between uh, a couple of, I think, local barons up, uh, I think it was up in Erfurt, uh, just a little bit north of him, um, where there was this big family dispute over, um, over possessions. Some, a father had died, and now there was debate between the children over who gets the stuff. So he went, and it was looking to get violent, so Luther was asked to come up and help them out. So like Luther, also involved in the social and political life, because 
these are these are really important people. Um, Luther dies uh, on the way, and it's very sad. And um, he has three different people writing funeral sermons for him. And all three of them say that God has given us a harsh teacher for this particularly sinful time. They're seeing him as akin to the prophet Jeremiah or the prophet Ezekiel um, for just how coarse he is with people. Um, they actually see him, they actually see him as um, like almost an end times prophet in a lot of ways. And in mm. early devotional writing after his death, they actually do see him as like a prophet of the end. They're convinced that the, that the last, that the last things have come. Mm. Um, it takes a little while for them to, uh, to get over that. Um, mm. You know, so like Luther's, Luther's writing, um, is exceptionally hard, and even his closest friends, I believe his, he had one, one sermon was by um, Philip Melanchthon, who is um, one of his, uh, you know, who was his closest compatriot in life. Um, he was another was, the systematician, right? He's the one who takes yeah. Luther's stuff and makes it Yeah, so if, if you look at the Book of Concord, which is our confessional document, um, all Lutherans are meant to uh, pretty much swear to, swear to abide by the Book of Concord. Um, because it's right. Like we, we, we think it's, we think it's, we think it's correct. Uh, we say, um, so like we're told to preach and teach according to this. Well, about half of the book of Concord is written by Melanchthon. Um, you know, it's not just, you've got the, the three ecumenical creeds. You've got the Augsburg confession by Melanchthon. You've got the apology to the Augsburg confession, which is written by Melanchthon. You've got the treatise on the primacy of the Pope, which is also written by Melanchthon. Um, you know, grab those things together and they're, you know, over half of the book. Uh, like, <laughs> so Melanchthon is one of the guys who Luther trusted and liked enough to, uh, to, you know, um, have him do all those things. And this is what Luther, Melanchthon is writing this about Luther. Yeah, he was, we loved him, but he was tough. Uh, yeah, yeah, he's a rough guy to be around. Uh, his other, Eustace Jonas was another friend of Luther's who wrote another one. And then there was some uh, some kind of dopey pastor who no one really likes, uh, who also wrote one. And the sermon's pretty bad, actually. So don't read that one. <laughs> read the ones by Jonas and Melanchthon. Uh, yeah, I think he had to be rough around the edges for what he pulled off. I think, uh, again, we're, you're dealing with such a powerful institution. There's nobody monk speaking to the power. Um, eventually getting exiled. Let's, let's just transition there a bit. So he's in exile because of what? Because he's about to. So, um, Luther is asked to give um, a huge defense of his overarching theological program um, before the emperor. Uh, the emperor has summoned him to the to a court in the city of Worms. Uh, you probably remember the Diet of Worms, which is a really funny way. It's, it's Worms, but but the Diet of Worms, which uh, is an imperial diet, uh, an imperial assembly. Um, where Luther is asked to give a final accounting of his theology or face, um, or, um, you know, the, the emperor gets to decide whether, whether what you're up to is heresy or whether you're going to die or what. Um, he's granted safe passage to, but not safe passage out of. Uh, Luther is asked to recant his works, um, and he refuses. It's not actually really a chance for him to defend himself it's more of a chance to him to publicly apologize and throw away and burn his most important works um to date at that point 
What Luther ends up uh, doing, though, is saying, I can't because most of these are actually really good. Even my opponents will say a lot of the content of a lot of the things I'm writing is actually kind of accurate, especially when Luther is talking about baptism mm -hmm. and other commonly agreed upon things. Like Luther is not just writing crazy controversial views. He is writing standard views on baptism, um, on, uh, on the efficacy of the word of God, on the centrality of Jesus. It's like, if you ask me to recant these things and you're asking me to recant my very soul because, well, even you agree this is good. Even most of you agree this is good stuff. I mean, I'll recant some of the mean things I say because I was too mean. Uh, but a lot of this is good Christian doctrine. And I, it would be against conscience and against soul to go against them. It would be against conscience and against soul for me to not stand against indulgences because they're wrong. Church history says they're wrong. Um, and then um, the, the conclusion of his speech is one that you that most that a lot of people have heard of it's here i stand i can do no other god help me amen and that kind of concludes his trial um luther is making his way out of worms as um you know there's now kind of a bounty on his head he's now like the figure that's going the person who's going to be killed is him he has no safe passage he has no safe anything he's he's gonna die um and while he's on the road um his prince sends men to abduct him. The territorial prince of his lands, um, uh, <clears throat> Elector, why am I suddenly blanking on this? That's embarrassing. Uh, we, got, we got the idea. Well, <laughs> Some well, guy. <laughs> an elector prince, uh, his elector prince, uh, Frederick the Wise, I believe. Um, I'm go. probably, I might be wrong. Um, has him abducted on the road before the Imperial soldiers can get him. They grab him, they hide him, and they bring him to a castle, uh, a former hunting lodge in, Wart in Wartburg, where he's asked, where he's more or less held hostage um, because they don't want him to die, and they, know that if th and they know that he can't go back to Wittenberg without being killed. Hmm. So the prince is kind of hold holding him down for a little while, trying to make sure that he's um, safe because um, he's writing too much good stuff and he's giving us a lot of money in Wittenberg, <laughs> and people want to study under his uh, under his students. So, like, uh, the elector is keeping him keeping him in Wartburg, and he hates it. It's a miserable place. But while he's there, he also starts writing a German translation to the New Testament. Mm. Um, I, and I feel like this is the key to the common link among all types of reform movements. In churches, uh, both Jeremy and I are Armenian evangelicals. There's a reform movement, not reacting towards the stuff in the Catholic Church. The Apostolic or Orthodox churches have already reacted towards some of these things uh, before before Luther. People always forget that. Like um, so, but there's this common link of getting the Scripture into the hands of the people in a language they could understand. And I always feel like that's the common link of all reform movements. And I feel like this is really cementing the movement in Germany by having this opportunity to be in exile and to start translating. Um, any thoughts there, Jeremy or, or, or Axel, as we wrap up? No, I think that's definitely a, that's definitely a through line. And um, it's, it's uh, what's interesting to me. I mean, if we were to, if we were to back up, so Luther, Luther is hashing out these differences in the context of the Catholic Western church. 
Um, and I think, you know, over the last couple of years in New Testament studies, there's been pushback on reading the Reformation, you know, into the New Testament because it's only speaking to a specific narrow niche of church history rather than the broader um, narrative of church history. Um, so you see that in some of like the new perspective stuff on Paul and um, others like that. But uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is what, what Luther seemed to be doing, if you read him seriously, is he seemed to be trying to reach back to the fathers. And he, like, you even kind of mentioned it in passing that when he's arguing in the, at the Diet of Worms, he's saying, look, even the fathers wouldn't have liked indulgences. Like church history isn't on the side of this stuff. Um, so one of the legacies I appreciate about the Reformation, and if you take it seriously and honestly, like it, it really it's not just a attack against the Catholic church. It's, it's a, an attack against injustice in the church using the, the broad church tradition from the beginning to where we are today. Um, I always, yeah, I've said this and, you know, like our Armenian reformation is very different than the Protestant reformation in the West, because like Hike said, we're not dealing with a Catholic system. We're not dealing with the Holy Roman empire. We're dealing with, an expression of Orthodox Eastern, uh, well, I guess it's Oriental Orthodox faith. That's what we'd call it now. I, um, I just want to clarify this too, because you're always named by your opponents. Like Oriental Orthodox is not something Armenians call themselves. Lutherans yeah. were, they want, like Luther wanted to be called evangelical. Lutherans was just yeah. given to him by the, the, the opposing team. And I, I, th I just want to clarify that because I always get frustrated with some of these yeah. labels. Your right, enemies right. choose your nicknames. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, even Armenian evangelicals, we get called, you know, evangelical. And it's like, we get mixed in with, we've said this before, like, what is evangelical in the States? What is evangelical in Europe? Like, there's different definitions of what evangelical is. And, you know, it seems like the first in our in our manifestation of a reformation our communities were just like let's read scripture together pray together and have an actual honest in, encounter and experience with jesus through the spirit and see where that takes us um and i guess i guess what i'm i mean i guess what i'm trying to say is in in all of this there is a legacy that's that's had by luther in this just trying to be honest to scripture and trying to be honest to the church tradition he's been handed. If you were to kind of sum up that legacy, uh, Axel, what would that, what would that legacy be? What does Luther left us with? Luther ultimately, and this is a theme that I haven't gone into enough. I mean, it's always frustrating having these conversations because there's so much more. There's so much yeah. to leave behind. Yeah. Um, Ultimately, what I would say is what Luther leaves us is this call not to look upon the high and mighty, but to look upon the cross hmm. um, at, the, at the most, at terror and wickedness and suffering and say that God is here, hmm. not as someone who's here to hurt you, not as someone who's here to judge you or condemn you, but someone to give you life. Someone, you know, God, God is here in the midst of suffering and sorrow and is there with you and is lead, even leading you out. And that this is, you know, our God is a merciful God. Luther's quest is often seen as, where do I find a merciful God? Mm. Well, we find it in Jesus, mm. um, who was one, not with the powerful, but with the despised, mm. who died not as a powerful one, 
but as a but as a as a crucified one mm. and that there's if god can work such good out of that if god could be jesus christ then what does that mean for today mm. because we believe that god is still working because we believe that god is still active that that the holy spirit is actually doing stuff we can look at any rotten painful harmful situation and say that god is at work that's beautiful in spite of everything else that's beautiful axel we appreciate it so much we thank you for being on with us today um if i can have one last thought i feel really bad when i don't bring this up um luther's legacy is ambivalent luther (laughs) isn't our hero luther we're named after luther yeah but like um luther isn't an unimpeccable hero we talked about how mean he was um it, it would be an irresponsibility for me not to mention that, you know, Luther's relationship with the Jews mm. was awful. Yeah. Um, that we've come, that we had to renounce that. Yeah. Um, we even think that a lot of his views around the Jews ultimately goes against the Lutheran confessions in his own writings. The worst thing about Luther's attitudes towards the Jews is that they actually break his own model. He can't consistently yeah. hold the position. He's his um, own worst enemy. Exactly. So, I just want to put that out there. It's it's never a good talk about Luther unless we bring up his flaws. Right. Yeah. Right. And and Luther would hate the fact that anyone would idolize him. Like, like that's right. Absolutely. That's right. Like he would, right. he would lose his mind. He would start cursing you out if you yeah. started yeah. to idolize yeah, 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 him versus yeah. worshiping God. Yeah. Axel, thank you so much for being on today. Um, if if you uh, you were mentioning earlier, you're doing some. Uh, some like blog videos of uh, Lutheran history and Lutheran theology. Do you want to share with us how we can reach those? Uh, yeah, sure. If you look up on YouTube, um, Confessions in Quarantine uh, under A.T. Kegler, um, you'll find a number of videos on the Lutheran confessions, um, so far on the small catechism and the distinction between law and gospel, another central, pre- another central principle of uh, the Lutheran project. Um, so, yeah, um, working on those. I hope to be putting out more of them. They take a while. Because uh, as you can tell, I can go on for a while. And good <laughs> videos are short. <laughs> we would love, actually, I mean, we didn't even really get into the de- theological distinctives of Lutheranism. So maybe sometime soon we'll have you on and talk about law and gospel, real presence, all the different unique ways that uh, Lutheran theology has contributed to the church tradition. So, hey, Axel, uh, pleasure to have you on. Everybody, uh, Thanks for joining us today on the Christ and Coffee podcast. Uh, we'll be tuning. I hope you'll be tuning in again uh, next week as we uh, dive deeper and have this little coffee hour together with friends and and uh, connect with brothers and sisters around the states. God bless you. Have a great week. Take care, everyone. Thanks, Axel. Oh.